All right, listen, guys, I get it. Many of you are unable to financially support this ministry because you're spending your cash and your lives on raising young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praise God for you and that endeavor. However, algorithms are a thing. Shadow banning, sadly, is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. Welcome back to another Monday Live with yours truly, Pastor Joel Webin, host of Right Response Ministries. Uh, We skipped last Monday because we had just completed our conference, the Theonomy and Post-Millennialism Conference. It was a great turnout. We had 550 people who registered. Uh, The room that we were able to rent, the venue only really seats about 475, 500 is already pushing it. So we had to cap out at 550. We had another 200 people that were signed up on a waiting list. And so there were a lot of people that were interested in this event. We had Dr. James White, uh, Pastor Dale Partridge. We had Dr. Joseph Boot and myself. We did a couple panels. We did seven uh, primary lectures. The conference was a great time of encouragement uh, in hopeful eschatology, Christ, victory, here and now, that Christ is reigning now, not just that he will reign then, but reigning now. And he's not just reigning spiritually in heaven, uh, but that he's reigning here on earth. So this present, uh, this present reign of Christ that is both here and now, his victory progressively working through the whole earth as he's subduing each of his enemies um, as footstool, as a footstool for his feet, and theonomy, the goodness of God's law, pushing back against uh, the antinomianism that has become uh, so pervasive in our culture and even the evangelical church culture today, the goodness of God's law, general equity theonomy, taking the general equity of all of God's law that we find throughout the scripture, including the Old Testament, and applying it to all of life, every single realm of human society, all of Christ for all of life because he is reigning now and he is reigning here. So that was um, a highly successful, encouraging event. I got to speak to probably uh, 200 of you in just personal, brief conversations throughout uh, the couple days of the conference. You were so encouraging to me. I'm so grateful for you. Um, and I'm excited to say uh, that in light of the conference, uh, we, you know, being so successful and seeing that there's such um, a need and a desire for uh, hopeful eschatology and the goodness of God's law, all of Christ for all of life, uh, we want to make this a regular event and not just doing this once a year, but we actually want to hold two conferences every single year. We want to have a large spring conference and then we want to also have a smaller fall conference. And so I want to take a moment real quick and just announce our upcoming two conferences. So we just finished our late spring conference. That was um, last weekend. Well, not this most recent last weekend, but the weekend before that, May 5th, 6th, and 7th. That's why we took off on Monday the 8th. Uh, But we're back every Monday at 2 p.m. Central Time, live on YouTube, 
Uh, we'll be back on that rhythm. But we took off uh, for that conference. That was our late spring conference. And now we have our fall conference that I want to announce. And then we'll have our spring conference again next year. This is the fall conference. It's called The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Now, some of you might be saying, Joel, you can't use that title. That's the title of Chris Wiley's book. Well, Chris Wiley is speaking at the conference and I got his permission to use it as the title for the conference. So we're all good. So we've got Chris Wiley or C.R. Wiley is, is how he signs his books. You might be more familiar with him as an author. Uh, we also have Jared Longshore who will be speaking at the conference. He's a pastor with Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho. And then myself, we'll have um, multiple sessions with each of us, and then we'll have a panel uh, with all three of us discussing parenting, discussing marriage, biblical patriarchy, uh, with hopeful eschatology, households as the primary building block for ushering back in a new Christendom as we seek to push forward the crown rights of King Jesus over every square inch. So that's going to be this fall. It's going to be a full day Saturday and then holding over, kind of overflowing to the Lord's Day, our Lord's Day worship with the church that I pastor, Covenant Bible Church, uh, north of Austin, Texas. And so, by the way, if you're in Central Texas looking for a good church, go to covenantbible.org covenantbible.org. Come and check us out. So that'll be, again, this conference, The Household and the War for the Cosmos with Chris Wiley and Jared Longshore and myself, full day Saturday, that's November 11th, and then hold over with uh, the Lord's Day. Jared will stay and preach for us that morning. That's Sunday, November 12th. So November 11th and November 12th, and you can register for this conference right now by going to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. That's the fall conference. We're excited. Here is the spring conference. So two conferences every year. We just finished our spring conference. We've got the fall conference coming up. And then for next year, we're going ahead and uh, receiving registrations as of today for our spring conference. It's going to be March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's a Friday, full day Friday, full day Saturday. And again, hold over for the Lord's Day Sunday. Uh, we're going to have Douglas Wilson. He will be one of our speakers. Brian Sauve from Ogden, Utah. You might know him from the King's Hall podcast or Haunted Cosmos or Bright Hearth. Uh, we're also going to have, again, Dr. Joseph Boot and then again, myself, Joel Webin. So Douglas Wilson, pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. We'll have Brian Sauve. We'll have uh, Dr. Joseph Boot and myself. The title for this conference is The King and His Kingdom. The King and His Kingdom. A subtitle that we're using is this, Seven Doctrines for Ruling the World. We are called to exercise Christian stewardship. Uh, the biblical command is not that the Christian um, abstain from ruling or that they abdicate a responsibility to rule, but rather the command for Christians, especially Christian men in their homes, in the church, in the state, in all these various spheres, as Christians we are stewards, we are ambassadors, we are uh, a kingdom of priests, we are little kings, we are called to rule. So we don't um, uh, just try to abdicate rulership or reject ruling, reject power and authority, but rather the biblical 
command is to rule righteously. So seven doctrines for ruling the world, um, that's assumed in that, implicit in that subtitle, is these are seven doctrines that thoroughly equip Christians to rule the world righteously with every single sphere of human society to rule well in the home, in the church, in the state, in markets, in vocation, in medicine, in media, in academia, uh, that we are called to exercise godly stewardship, exercise godly dominion. So we're going to have uh, seven main sessions with these speakers. We will probably be inviting a few more guys to join us as speakers, and we'll announce that as it unfolds. But for now, we have officially confirmed Douglas Wilson, Brian Sauvet, Joe Boot, myself, seven main sessions. There's going to be two panel discussions throughout this conference and then a holdover for the Lord's Day, which will be Sunday, March 3rd. So that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 2024, next year, the King and His Kingdom, Seven Doctrines for Ruling the World. Again, we had 550 people register for this last conference, the Theonomy and Postmillennialism Conference, with 200 more people on a waiting list. So, we have, in faith, gone ahead and officially booked a larger venue that seats um, about a thousand people. But here's the deal. I'm announcing it publicly right now for the very first time, but we did announce it to those who were in attendance at our last conference, and 260 of them have already registered. So we have a thousand spots, but we're already down to less than uh, 750. We're already um, over 25% full, and I'm announcing it publicly for the very first time right now. So here's my point. The point is that this conference is going to fill up incredibly fast. We sold out our last conference, Theonomy and Postmillennialism. We sold that conference out six months before the event actually took place. I warned you guys. I told you that there is an incredible demand and desire for hopeful eschatology and the goodness of God even faster. Again, we're at 260 registrations right now. We have about 740 registration spots left open. I encourage you to go to rightresponseconference.com, rightresponseconference.com, and register for both of these conferences as quickly as possible. The last thing that I'll say on this note is the seven doctrines, to be a little bit specific here, the seven doctrines that we're going to be teaching on is number one, reformed confessional theology. Confessional reformed theology, right? So this idea of uh, we want to be reformed, we want to uh, understand the sovereignty of God in every realm of life, and we want to be confessionally reformed. We, we want to hold to a historic reformed doctrine. That's number one. Number two, covenant theology. Not dispensationalism, but God working through covenants. He's done this throughout all of, of biblical history and the last 2,000 years of church history. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So covenant theology. Next is biblical patriarchy. So reformed confessional theology, covenant theology, biblical patriarchy, father rule in the home, in the church, and in the civil realm as well. Uh, then we have presuppositionalism, presuppositionalism, 
Then after that, Kyperianism, all of Christ for all of life, every square inch belonging to King Jesus. Number six is going to be general equity theonomy. And number seven is postmillennial eschatology. So confessionally reformed, covenant theology, biblical patriarchy, presuppositionalism, Kyperianism, uh, general equity theonomy, and post-millennialism. Seven sessions, one session each for each of these seven doctrines, and then two panel discussions where we uh, tackle some of the big questions and issues and theological topics that are going on for the church today. You're not going to want to miss this event with, again, Douglas Wilson, Brian Sauvey, um, Joe Boot and myself with other guys who will be announced shortly, who will be coming into the mix. Uh, some of them speaking, some of them may be hopping on a panel. Some of them will be guys you recognize who won't actually be speaking at the conference, but just plan to be there. So you should plan to be there too. It's going to sell out uh, very quickly. Right now we have the early bird rate. Okay, so this is your chance to get a ticket for the conference um, as uh, as cheaply as possible, but the rate will be going up soon. We're not going to do it in terms of setting a time. We're going to do it. We will let you know, hey, at this time, we're going to stop it, but we're going to base that off of registrations. It's very likely that we'll have another couple hundred registrations within a matter of days. Again, it's not because we're awesome. It's not because we're novel, um, but it's because the world lost its mind over the last few years. Um, the world has been losing its mind for decades, to be fair. But over the last three years, whether it be the Branch Covidians or uh, the Summer of Love and BLM riots or transing kids or uh, whatever, you fill in the blank. We're living currently in clown world. And so, yeah, a lot of Christians are considering perhaps it might be worth at least just giving a shot to the idea that God might have a standard. It's not whether, but which. Maybe God has a standard. Maybe his law is actually still good. Maybe we should have a Christian nation and Christian government. Maybe we should apply all of Christ for all of life. And maybe, just maybe, God might be so merciful and kind that it would be successful. That it's not only our marching orders in terms of what obedience looks like, but maybe obedience might actually work. Maybe we're not just shining brass, polishing brass on a sinking ship, just rearranging the deck chairs on top of the Titanic. Maybe uh, God has not ordained for everything to spiral down into oblivion and then Jesus comes and he's going to come next Thursday. What if Jesus tarried for another 500 years? What if he tarried for another 5,000 years? And what if it was actually God's decree, his plan, that the leaven would work through the whole batch of dough, that the mustard seed would grow into a great tree, that the stone cut by no human hands would actually grow into a mountain that fills the whole earth? What if Christ's victory, his kingdom is meant by God to progressively advance and grow throughout all the earth in real human history through the battering ram of the church as the tip of the spear. People are considering these things. The last few years of clown world has forced many Christians to consider these things. And these are the things that our ministry, Right Response, and other like-minded ministries like Brian and Doug and Joe are committed 
to addressing. So go to rightresponseconference.com and register for both of these conferences today. And the last thing that I want to say, then I'll get into our topic. I've just officially uh, published my book, Fight by Flight, Why Leaving Godless Places is Loving Godless Places. Again, that's Fight by Flight, Why Leaving Godless Places is Loving Godless Places. Essentially, what I'm arguing in the book is that Christians should prayerfully and seriously consider moving to a more defensible position. And I mean not just in the spiritual sense or the abstract, but literally, physically, geographically, moving out of godless, progressive cities, godless, progressive states, godless, progressive countries even. We have a couple families from Canada that are now in our church all the way down in central Texas, and we are honored to have them with us. I think this is another thing that Christians are considering after the last three years of cultural insanity. Do I want to raise my kids in a state like New York or a state like California? So, you know, the, the, the time-old question has always been, is it, you know, fight or flight? Basically, my premise in this book is that I argue that there is a third option, that it's not just stay in a godless place and fight or flee and retreat and surrender, but that you can actually fight by flight, that by fleeing, we can actually fight some of the progressive ideologies and policies uh, that, that we so detest as Christians who love God's Word. The book is forwarded by Douglas Wilson. It's been endorsed by individuals such as Steve Dace from The Blaze TV, Michael Foster, who's the author of It's Good to Be a Man, Megan Basham from The Daily Wire. Um, the book, I think, is very simple. It's short, it's sweet, but it's helpful uh, in creating a theological category for faithful Christians to be able to relocate their family for the good of their children, uh, for the good of their vocation, uh, for all those purposes in order to try to be obedient to God, it provides this theological category outside of merely the category of surrender. A lot of Christians, that's pretty much the only categories they have. Either stay and go down with the ship or quit. And so what I'm arguing is that there's actually a way where a retreat can be temporary, it can be tactical, and it can be strategic. And a retreat like that, in Christian terms, is actually merely an advance to the rear. Advancing to the rear. No real retreat, but strategically running not from a battle, but to a battle. A battle that is both winnable and it is significant. It's a battle worth winning and a battle that can actually be won. All right? The war is going to have many battles across the world over the course of centuries as we seek to push for the crown rights of King Jesus. But there are some battles that set the course for the world, this war that we're in. Uh, the battles such as, you know, you think historically the Battle of Bunker's Hill, right? It may not have even been the biggest battle necessarily, uh, but it was strategic. And right now, we need recruitments in places that are both winnable, but also significant if they could be won. And we're not talking about leaving a place like New York or California or Canada or New Zealand forever. We're talking about leaving these godless places strategically, 
momentarily so that they can actually lie in the bed that they've been making. So that Christians are no longer propping these godless ideologies and policies up by their hard-earned tax dollars. That, that we actually would force someone like Gavin Newsom to take a spoonful of his own medicine. So we're not leaving one fight uh, to go and retreat in safety. We're leaving one fight to go to another fight. And in leaving the one fight, that might be one of the ways that we actually win that fight also. That's the premise of the book. Go and check it out. You can get it on Amazon or you can go to rightresponseministries.com. We have a lower price than Amazon that we wanted to make available to you. Uh, so go to rightresponseministries.com. Click on our store. It should be on the very first page, Fight by Flight, Why Leaving Godless Places is Loving Godless Places. Check out the book today. All right, let's go ahead and hop into our topic for this afternoon. Um, the topic that we want to address is biblical patriarchy and particularly the jurisdiction, the degree of authority that a man has in his own home, the degree of authority uh, that a husband has with his wife in his marriage and that a father has when it comes to his children. That's the topic. I have some things that I think are vital for you to hear um, as we discuss biblical patriarchy, we also, we did a poll recently, and it seems like a lot of you really want me to get into covenant theology, so my plan is to address covenant theology next week. But for today, we're going to address biblical patriarchy, and I promise I'll hop into it without any more delays right after a very quick word from our sponsors. With the banking industry in another tailspin and the Fed ready to raise interest rates once again, many of you are probably asking, when does this madness stop? If you're interested in learning how to establish a family banking system outside of today's mainstream banking insanity, then schedule a call with our sponsors at Private Family Banking. There's a way for individuals and families to put their hard-earned money to work continuously accruing compounding interest and have those resources available as collateral for cash or for financing investments, business, college, and other major life expenditures without going to the big banks for loans. Income tax protected, safety from stock market losses, guaranteed rates of compounding interest, and the ability to store up an inheritance for your children's children and avoid the death tax on your estate. If this interests you, then email our friends at familybankingnow at gmail.com to schedule a call. Again, that's familybankingnow at gmail.com. Send them an email today. All right, so I recently preached a sermon at the church that I pastor, Covenant Bible Church, about 45 minutes north of Austin. Again, if you're looking for a good church, check out covenantbible.org. I recently preached a sermon just a few weeks ago, and there was a particular portion of the sermon that people had um, a visceral reaction to. And what I was addressing is the degrees of authority and jurisdiction of authority in the three primary spheres, sovereign spheres that God has, uh, that God has ordained. So the, talking about the home, the church, and the state. These 
divinely instituted spheres of government. Now, all of these are government. Technically, from a biblical perspective, we could say that there are four governments. There is self-government, which we see exemplified in the scripture, if in no other place, simply in the fruit of the Spirit, that is self-control. We are all called to be good, righteous Christian governors of self, right? To exercise stewardship over ourself, our actions, our deeds, our words, our spiritual health, physical health, on and on and on. So self-government. Then we have the familial government. Uh, the family is um, a form of government. It is a sphere of government. Then we have ecclesiastical government, that is the church. And then we have civil government, that is the state. Now in each of these governments, there are varying degrees of authority. And the larger point that I was making in this portion of my sermon is that I was saying, starting with the civil realm, starting with the state, you have civil fathers. And I do hold to biblical patriarchy, patriarchy simply meaning father rule, father rule. I believe that this is God's design and that it is not God's design merely for the home and the church, um, but it is God's design for all of human society, that society as a whole, even outside of the family and the church, even in the civil realm, the state, that society would be um, led by godly men, led by godly men. So, civil fathers in the realm of the state, in terms of the scope of their governmental authority, that scope is wide. It encompasses every single person within the country. If we're talking about federal officials, civil magistrates, if we're talking about the president of the United States, then he has a certain degree, very limited, but a certain degree of authority over 330 million people. His authority is a mile wide, we might say, but about an inch deep. The depth or degree of his authority is very small, very limited. Now, it's important to say this, all human authority is vested authority, meaning there is no such thing as human authority being inherent authority. It's all been given by God, and human beings are merely charged by God to steward that authority. It's not inherent to us. It is not innate. So no human being has limitless authority. And so too, starting with civil fathers in the realm of the state, they have very uh, limited degree of authority. But in terms of uh, the people they're in authority over, it's a much wider scope. So, so the breadth of their authority is wide, but the depth, degree of their authority is shallow. Okay, Ecclesiastical fathers, speaking of the, the divine instituted sphere of the church now, they have um, a larger degree of authority, but a smaller scope. As a local pastor, I have a certain measure of authority. The jurisdictions have been set for me in Scripture. I don't have limitless authority. It's very defined and very limited, but not as limited as civil authority. So civil authority is the widest. It, it uh, contains the largest scope of authority, but it is the shallowest. Right? It's the smallest degree of authority. Ecclesiastical fathers 
predominantly elders, but also deacons, which I do believe deacons should be male. I hold to a male diaconate. That's the Westminster position and the 1689 position. Anyone within the uh, confessionally reformed tradition has held for approximately 500 years now that both pastors and deacons should be male. This is not a crazy position. Um, This is the historic position that the church has held for a very, very long time. I say 500 years because I was speaking uh, particularly about the Reformed tradition, but really this is the tradition even outside of Reformed theology stretching all the way back to the first century church. Uh, 2,000 years, uh, we see that deacons are called to be men. So, ecclesiastical fathers, predominantly elders, but um, as viceroys or deputies, you might say, uh, to a lesser degree, male deacons as well. They are the ecclesiastical fathers in the realm of the church, and they have a, a deeper authority, right? a larger degree of authority, but a much smaller scope of authority. Um, they have authority, in my case, over uh, you know about 200 people in my church. We, by God's grace, planted in April 2021. The church has been going for just a little over two years now. We've gone from 20 people to 200 people in those two years, all by the grace of God, but the church is still relatively small, and so the scope of my authority is relatively small, whereas the degree of my authority is very limited, very specific, But I would argue that it's a greater degree of authority as a pastor over his church than, for instance, the president of the United States over a country. Okay. Lastly, the home, the sphere of the home. This would be familial fathers. Um, The husband has a a much smaller, husband slash father has a much smaller scope of authority. Right? As a husband and father, I have authority over five people, my wife and then my four children. So there are only five people within the realm of my authority as a husband and father, familial father in the sphere of the home. But the degree of authority that I have in this realm is far, far deeper. It's a much greater degree of authority than the authority I have as a local pastor in the realm of the church. I have much greater authority in regards to the relationship that I have toward my wife than I do in the relationship I have towards a congregant. I have even greater authority in regards to my position as a father with my children than I do as a husband with my wife. And in this particular sermon a few weeks ago, I gave examples, right? That's the context. I was arguing about degrees of authority in various spheres of government, wider scope to working down to a more limited scope, um, and shallower, shallower degree or depth of authority getting deeper as we work from the civil realm to the ecclesiastical realm to the familial realm, the home. Now, one of the examples that I used with children, as I said, when it comes to being a father in your home and your authority over your children, it is almost It is virtually limitless authority. Now, even there, um, clearly, the Father has limits. All authority is vested authority. Uh, It's designated by God. It's not inherent to any human man. And so, there are still limits for a father and the authority he has for his children. But the degree of authority that he has in that context is great. 
And I gave some examples. I said that a father uh, can dictate uh, the wardrobe of his children. Right? A father uh, can dictate and decide uh, the diet, what food the family is going to be eating, even when the children need to go to the bathroom. Now, some people lost their ever-loving minds on that last point. And let me clarify. My church was laughing as I'm preaching this, laughing with me, not at me, because they know me and they know my family. Now, of course, it was my decision. I take responsibility for it, and I really don't regret it, but I chose to make this portion of my sermon available on the World Wide Web where many people do not know me, and they do not know my family. So, for those of you who don't know, the ages of my four children is five, three, two, and eight months. So when I said that a father... As a father, speaking of myself in my sermon, I have authority over when my children go to the bathroom. I was not talking about a 16-year-old teenage daughter. My oldest is five. I'm talking about, um, I'm talking, about talking to your two-year-old, in my case, a two-year-old and a three-year-old, and saying, sweetheart, did you go potty? No, dad. No, dada. You need to go potty. It's bedtime, we got our jammies on, and you will not be able to hold it all night long. You have not gone potty since before nap time, which was approximately six hours ago. We need to go potty before we go to bed. Right? I'm telling a child in that instance, my child, when to go to the bathroom. Now, here's the funny thing. People you know, <laughs> reacted saying, this is tyrannical, this is authoritative. Um, the irony is, I, I want to meet all these abusive parents, because this would actually be more accurate as an example of abuse. I want to meet all the abusive parents who are responsible for the epidemic of bedwetting that we must be experiencing all around the world, because uh, apparently we have a bunch of parents that, that won't tell their two-year-old or three-year-old to go to the bathroom before bed. And I guarantee you, as a parent with experience, if you're not willing to tell a child of that age you need to go potty, then what you have is, well, you, you pretty much are changing the sheets every single morning. So uh, the fact that that was viewed as extreme um, is, well, I, I, I'll go ahead and chalk that one up in defense of my hearers uh, to just maybe they just didn't know the ages of my children. Maybe they just didn't know uh, the point that I was trying to convey. Now knowing the ages of my children, if you still hold to that position uh, that a father does not have the authority to tell his two and three-year-old that they need to go potty before bedtime, um, then I, I guess I, I would just have to suspect not even that you're a liberal or progressive, but you're just probably not a parent. You just probably don't have kids. And so I would just suggest maybe sit the bench and you know i think the world will do just fine without your two cents on this particular issue all right that's that now what about a husband with his wife right so father with his children it's a great degree of authority um over over that this is what we're going to wear their mother and i we will set out their clothing you know this is the outfit we're going to wear today right and of course we make the decision of, of what clothing we're going to purchase for our children. 
So we decide what, what uh, is contained in their wardrobe and what outfit they're going to wear that day. It's a lot of authority. What time they're going to go to bed. When is bedtime? Um, that is an authority that, again, remember the larger context of the point that I was making. The civil magistrate does not have that authority. Right? A, a governor or Congress um, or a city council does not get to tell us when to go potty. They do not get to tell us uh, what outfit to wear on a particular day. Um, that's not an authority that's been given to them. So remember, keep in mind here, my larger principle talking about there are four primary um, spheres of government, self-government, family government, church government, state government. In each of these spheres, um, as we move from the self outward, from self to family to church to government, the scope of authority gets wider, but the depth of authority gets shallower. That's the principle. Okay, and all this builds up to a final point that I'll make here in just a moment. But what about a husband in regards to his wife? Now, the example that I gave when I was talking about a husband's authority with his wife, the particular example I gave was this. I said that a husband has a degree of authority even regards to what books his wife might read. And I talked about the danger of certain women's Bible studies. And I stand by this 100%. Um, I have seen many Christian marriages fracture because the woman is participating in what's being presented as a Bible study, but it's only for women. And they're utilizing certain materials and books and curriculum also written by women, uh, but the women who have provided these materials are not sound in the faith. And things get wacky. They get wacky. I don't know if you guys remember this. It was a while back, but I remember there was a lot of pushback, and rightfully so, uh, when Jen Wilkin um, teaching women in a women's only context, right? So Titus 2, women training women, right? Older women training younger women. She's teaching, and she was teaching about penal substitutionary atonement. She was talking about the blood of Jesus, atoning for sins. And she said that women are... Um, uniquely or especially able to, um, to relate to Christ and his blood sacrifice, atoning for sins, because uh, women bleed. And they bleed on that special time of the month. That is an atrocious handling of Scripture. I didn't say this. I'm merely repeating for you what a... And the reason why I use Jen Wilkin is because she has been presented and viewed, perceived by many within evangelicalism as someone who's complementarian, somebody who's biblically conservative, right? I, 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 of course, I could give you examples of Joyce Meyer, Paula White. I could give you a lot of examples of Beth Moore things that have been taught that are not doctrinally sound, that are ridiculous and laughable. I choose to use Jen Wilkin not because she's the worst, um, but I'm trying to make an argument from the greater to the lesser. Right? I don't want to just straw man my, the, the opposition to my view. I want to steal man. I, I want to say, even in, in some of the better cases of women's ministries, you, you still have it seems like a tendency for women to teach some wacky 
things. Now, here's the deal. And this gets into another subject that's important, but I'll probably have to flesh out another time. I believe Titus 2. I believe that older women should train younger women. But I don't necessarily think that we need to have women's only conferences taught by only women for theology proper and doctrine of God. Why? Well, because women don't need to know about the hypostatic union and the Trinity. No, of course they do. Of course they do. That is not the position of patriarchy. Biblical patriarchy does not insist or even suggest that women should not learn theology. In fact, we would say not only is it permissible, but it is commanded by Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, a woman must learn. Not just that a woman is permitted to learn. And you have to keep in mind, this is culturally, it is radical for the time. The Apostle Paul, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not only saying that, that the door is now open, that women can be educated now, that it's permissible for women to learn about doctrine alongside their husbands and fathers and brothers, but Paul actually uses the word must. A woman must learn. Then he begins to address how. That she should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So women are not permitted to teach men, but women must learn. And here's the implication from the text. They must learn from men. So we don't want women um, only learning about how to make sourdough. That said, my wife makes amazing sourdough and she teaches other women how to make sourdough. And it's glorious, it's biblical, it's Christ-exalting, and it's great. It's great. But that is not all my wife is learning. My wife is reading serious theological books. My wife is listening to serious theological lectures. My wife is learning theology, and not just theology of sourdough, although that is a real thing, all of Christ for all of life, it's real, the theology of sourdough, but that is not all my wife is learning. So the biblical patriarchal position not only allows or permits, but insists that women should learn. But when it comes to who teaches some of these things, like who should be teaching uh, a 14-week long course on soteriology, or again, doctrine of God, theology proper, uh, the Trinity, the three persons of God, the one divine essence, the will of God. Does the will of God belong to his essence, nature, or does it belong to his persons? Does God have three wills because there are three persons in the Godhead or one will? And what about when Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done? Is this because he's the second person of the Trinity and he has an individual will, the Father has an individual will, and the Spirit has an individual will? Or is this because as the second member of the Trinity who took on flesh, he has two natures and that will is belonging to essence and nature. And so he shares one divine will with the Father and the Spirit in his divinity, but in his second nature, his humanity, there is a human will that is fully submitted to the divine will, but is also distinct. Right? That's some doctrine for you. There's some deep doctrine. Um, who should teach that? Predominantly, this is not a hard and fast rule. 
I don't want to be overly legalistic about this, but predominantly men and women not only may learn these things, but must learn these things, but they should learn them together. And the primary context where they learn them is at church. With a faithful week in and week out expositional preaching of God's word by biblically qualified pastors who, according to scripture, are men. Are men. So Titus 2, older women training younger women. Let me just go to that text because this is a concept that's very simple. It's not complicated. It's not difficult. Um, But it is apparently aggravating for many or annoying or just not liked. So this is Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And I think a lot of our sisters in Christ and certain brothers in Christ would stop right there. But in the text, we have not a period and an end of chapter, end of letter, end of book, but a comma. It goes now into verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, keepers of home, workers at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I am of the position that I believe when Titus 2 says older women should train younger women by teaching them what is good, that that good is not an ambiguous, abstract good. And then all of a sudden, the author of Scripture is now just changing subjects and begins to get on a whole new train of thought. No, I I think that the good the good that older women are commanded in Scripture to teach younger women is then defined. It's described. It's fleshed out. So so what is the biblical command? Well, we know from referencing other texts, like 1 Timothy 2, verses 9-15, through women are not permitted to teach men. However, according to Titus 2, verses 3-5, through older women are permitted to and even insisted upon to teach not men, but younger women. But the text doesn't just say that they can teach women, that women can teach women. It tells us what they are to teach. They are to teach the good. And it describes for us that good that is in reference. What is the good? Teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God not be reviled. Now, just like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, or just like the list of qualifications for deacons and elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, I don't believe that that list is an exhaustive list comprehensive. I believe that there are plenty of other things that we could put on that list that the Apostle Paul would uh, nod his head in full agreement with. 
But I think that what Paul chooses to list there in Titus chapter 2, that he uses to describe what is this particular good that older women should be training younger women in, I think that that list is not random. Exhaustive? No. But also random? Arbitrary? Likewise, no. It's, it's getting on to something. It's describing something. These are, in many, many cases, these are things pertaining to a woman's role as wife and mother. These are um, biblically domestic things, domestic roles, domestic virtues. How to submit to your husband, how to be a lover of your husband and lover of your children, how to work diligently at home, how to be self-controlled, how to be pure. We might um, insert modesty right there. Not that men um, are incapable of being immodest. Certainly men can be immodest as well. Um, but I do believe that that is a, a particular, especially in our culture today, but I think throughout all time and all history and all places, that there are some sins that women gravitate towards more than men and vice versa. There are certain um, strengths that men have that women don't. And there are certain weaknesses that men have that women don't. And on the flip side, there are certain sins that men are somewhat tempted with, but women are more tempted with. I think gossip would be an example. Men can gossip. I have gossiped. But women in general, right? Now, I'm speaking in general terms, and people really struggle with speaking in general terms. Um, is there one woman on the planet who can out-bench press one man on the planet? Yes. In general, are men physically stronger than women? Also, yes. You see what I did there? It's not hard. We can do this. Okay. Likewise, do I believe that women have a higher propensity in general across the board towards the sin of gossip than men? Yes. The sin of immodesty than men? Yes. Also, being deceived. Are women more likely to be deceived? Yes. And this is, throughout church history, this is the universally held position. It is not until really the last hundred years, really less than that, in the last 50 to 70 years, that, that the church has thought that when Peter says that the wife is a weaker vessel, that that, that, that is uh, strictly in the physical sense, that she is physically uh, weaker than her husband. First Timothy chapter 2, again, verses 9 through 15. Uh, one of the reasons that Paul cites for why a woman is not permitted to teach over a man is the created order. Right? Adam is formed first, then woman. Uh, woman is formed from man. Right? Adam's made from the dust of the ground. The woman is formed from the rib of Adam. So from, made from man and for man as his help meet. Right? So we have the created order. We have the purpose and design of women. But also, the Apostle Paul goes on not just to describe creation, but he also describes the fall. And in describing the fall, he says, For it was not the man who was deceived and became a sinner, but rather the woman who was deceived. Now, Adam bears more responsibility by virtue of his, his position as federal head, representing all of creation and certainly his wife Eve. Uh, he's also more culpable, morally responsible for his sin because he sinned with his eyes wide open. Adam knew that it was sin, whereas Eve was deceived. 
And Paul cites this. Here's the thing. It's not just one isolated um, narrative in the book of Genesis. If that's all it was, okay. But the Apostle Paul cites it as a reasoning for why women should not teach or exercise authority over men. He says that the woman was deceived. And again, this has been a universe, the lion's share of, of, of church history has held that that is one element that Peter probably has in mind when he says that the wife is a weaker vessel, that part of what he probably has in mind is that she is more susceptible towards deception. And that would include doctrinal deception. And that's part of the reason why women should not lead. We also find within uh, the Old Testament prophets that that one of the signs of God's judgment over a nation is when they are led by women and children. Again, can we find one woman that's better than one man? Absolutely. We live in a fallen world. Um, if, if, if we have you know, two candidates running for the presidency and one is um, an abolitionist and an evangelical Christian and she's a woman, and the other is Joe Biden, and he's a man, barely, albeit, but a man. I'm voting for that woman. Of course I am. I'm not an ideologue. See, part of the reason we can't talk about biblical patriarchy, and I'll confess this, is because some of the men, usually young single men, on our side of the position, um, they, they're not, the best way to describe them is they're not serious people. They're not serious people. They're not really interested in winning. And they're not really interested in persuading others to, to be convinced of, of the biblical position. They just, they just like to get a rise out of people. They, they just, they're like, they're like real life trolls, <laughs> not just on Twitter, but, in, but in, in their, in their personal discourse, in real life, flesh and blood, they just, they're like a living troll. And, and, and so they're not serious people. So all that being said, in the real world for serious people, serious men and women, um, yeah, we're going to vote for a Christian God-fearing woman over a godless, progressive, demonic man. But again, in general, we need to be able to do this, guys. We can speak in generalities. In general, um, men are called to lead. And I believe within the biblical patriarchal position that this is not exclusively confined merely to the realm of the home and the church, but that it extends beyond that even in the civil realm as well. Uh, that we should have kings rather than queens. All things being equal, in general, kings, not queens. You should have congressmen rather than congresswomen. And I do believe that this is a biblical principle, that men are called to lead, and not just in one sphere, but then that immediately being contradicted with their wife now taking a position of authority over them as soon as you move to another sphere. Think about that. Think about how confusing it is for complementarians, many that are faithful, biblical Christians, evangelicals in our society today, where they believe that the husband is the head of his wife in the home, but then they step outside their front door and all of a sudden the wife in this next sphere has authority over her husband, 
right? She's the CEO of some company and he's an employee or uh, she's, you know, she's a councilwoman and, and he's a citizen or what, whatever it may be. If husbands in the sphere of the family, the family being the, the, the smallest building block of society as a whole, that's all society is, is, is it's simply, society is simply uh, the, the sum of multiple families. If the husband is called to be the head of the family, then wouldn't it make sense that in keeping with that biblical pattern of patriarchy, father rule, male headship, ruling righteously, that, that men would lead, if they're called to lead in the home and explicitly commanded to lead in the church, wouldn't it make sense if they also were called to lead in society? Of course it makes sense. And that's what we've done for approximately 1,900 years. This is a question you have to seriously ask yourself. Do you think that the reason why these things are, are so strongly objected to today do you think that it has more to do with the fact that for the first time in 2000 years of church history we have competent biblical exegetes right that that, that throughout all of church history until about a hundred years ago that no one was really competent enough to exegete scripture but now we can right is that more likely or here's just a possible alter alternative just for your humble consideration is it possible that instead of us now finally having for the first time ever in 2000 years biblically competent exegetes instead we have feminists and that our society is drenched in feminism and that feminist culture has seeped into our churches is that possible? What's more likely? For the first time we have sound biblical exegesis? Or, in a very unique sense, we have a culture and society and even churches dominated by feminism? I think that it's the latter. I think it's the latter. So, biblical patriarchy and how it would differ from complementarianism at least in one sense, one simple way to describe that. There are other elements as well, but one simple way to describe that is that patriarchy believes that father rules the design across the board. Whereas complementarianism, it seeks to isolate male headship um, exclusively to the realm of the family and the church. And then when you get out of that and step into society, um, all bets are off. Right? So there's no problem with women ruling over men um, in the civil realm. Um, you just got to have male elders and the husband's the head of his wife. And what does it mean for the husband to be the head of his wife? Going back to you know, my sermon and giving examples of authority. Well, what it means is that they decide everything together. And maybe over the course of a healthy marriage, 40 years, 50 years, however long it is that they're married until they death do them part, they, you know, just can't agree on a particular issue. And so in that case, when they can't agree, they go and seek biblical counsel outside of the marriage by meeting with their pastors. Um, and if the biblical counselors don't side with the wife over the husband or the husband over the wife, um, and they spend time fasting and praying and getting counsel and all these things, and it still comes up a wash, it's still just 
50-50, we could go either way and we're not persuaded, we still disagree, then in that case, and only that case, the husband and being head over the wife gets to make the decision. For a lot of complementarians, that's what the authority of a husband in the home looks like. Another way to put it is it looks like having no authority. What does the authority of a husband in the home look like? Well, it looks like no authority. And that's part of the reason why me and other men are objecting to complementarianism and saying, I don't know if we like this. I don't know if this is biblical. I, and, and we're even kind of starting to back away from the term and saying, well, we already had a term. It's a good term. Uh, it, it's a term that uh, has historical origins. It doesn't just go back to 15 minutes ago with Wayne Grudem and John Piper. God bless them. But it's, it's a long-held term. Patriarchy. It's a good word. And it means something. It means something. So, biblical patriarchy, not just um, a tiny fraction of authority in the home and the church and then no male authority anywhere else, but rather real authority in the home, to a lesser degree, still real authority in the church, and to an even lesser degree, real authority in society. And male headship across the board, not just the home and the church, but in the civil realm as well. That's biblical patriarchy in a nutshell. So going back to the illustration that I provided in my sermon, or not illustration, but example, um, my wife, she was reading a book. This is probably about six years ago. And, and that shocked me because I don't like women being able to read. No, I'm just kidding. She was reading a book and the book was um, about pedo-baptism. And now to set the context again, as I'm saying this, my congregation is laughing. Right? Because we get it. Now, again, it's on me. I, you, when you make something publicly available to the World Wide Web, then you're going to have a lot of people who are watching that don't know the context. And that's fine. So that's on me. I can't blame anybody with that. But the people in my congregation are laughing because it's kind of been a longstanding joke. You know, uh, Joel's you know, basically Presbyterian. He's going to become a Presbyterian, blah, blah, blah. At this point in my ministry, I, you know, I, I partner with more Presbyterians than I do Baptists. And and so it's kind of been a running joke for, you know, me, my wife, my family, my congregation. And so I said, you know, I walked in the house. I had finished work in my studio. I walked in the house and I saw my, my wife reading a book about pedo-baptism. And I said, uh-uh, no, you're not reading that. Put that down. All right, we will read that together sometime. It may be a while because I'm busy right now, but eventually I'll get to it and we'll read it together. But you're not going to become a pedo-baptist three years before I do. Now, that's what I said. My congregation is laughing. My wife is smiling and laughing. Uh, my kids, again, five, three, two, and zero. They don't really know what's going on, but people are laughing next to them, so they're laughing. Um, we get it. It's not crazy. There's some of the context for you. But a lot of people who watch this on the internet, now again, in their defense, they don't know the backstory about how Joel's kind of been flirting with Presbyterianism for multiple years now and blah, blah, blah. Um, but still, even without the context, that should not have been a shocking example. Think about this for a second. I'm a Reformed credo-Baptist pastor. And as a Baptist pastor of currently what is a Baptist church, Reformed Baptist church, that holds to the credo-Baptist position, that I don't want my wife to read a book that, that is designed, this particular book is, is a book, it's about a conversation between a, a Pado baptist and 
um, a credo baptist where the pedo baptist wins the credo baptist over and it's it's like letters like discourse going back and forth them debating and the whole book the whole purpose of the book and this isn't malicious or bad it's fine um, of course we want to persuade people of our position but the person who put this book together the, their purpose is to persuade credo baptists to become pedo baptists and so a reformed baptist credo baptist pastor not just christian man but a pastor i pastor a baptist church doesn't want uh, the pastor's wife in a Baptist church for her to have her conscience bound, right? Because that's what happens when we read persuasive things is it not always, but often we get persuaded and in being persuaded in Christian terms, what that is, is your conscience being bound. Now, now think about that for a moment. Just, just play it out, right? It's, this is not hard. Just play it out. You have you have the senior pastor of a Baptist church who holds to a credo Baptist position. And his wife now is convinced of the pedo-baptist position. And her conscience has been bound through biblical arguments made in a book that she read about pedo-baptism. And so she now actually thinks she loves her husband, still respects her husband, but she cannot help but think that at least in this one particular area, her husband is in sin. Her husband's in sin. right? Because we're not relativists. Remember, guys, let, let me frame this up for you. We're not relativists. Right? Both positions are not simultaneously right. Somebody's right and somebody's wrong. So I'm asking you now, is it healthy for that marriage as it seeks to be unified? And for the church and the congregation as a whole, is it healthy for the wife of a senior ba- uh, pastor in a Baptist church to be convinced and have her conscience bound that pedo-baptism is actually the biblical position and that her church and her husband are currently in sin. Is that helpful? So what if the husband walks in the door and says, uh-uh, and he says it with, with a jolly cheerfulness. He's not shouting. He's not being totalitarian. But with a jolly cheerfulness, he says, uh-uh, I know, babe. I know you're tempted, so am I. We've been talking about this in our marriage that maybe we've been wrong about baptism and we're going to get into the ark, but no, 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 you're not going to, you're not going to get a head start on me, right? And that's one of the things that I said in the, the sermon. I said, my wife's not going to outpace me. Okay, but again, the context, outpace me in what? Pedo-baptism. That's what I was talking about. I'm not saying that she can't outpace me in anything. Of course my wife outpaces me. My wife when it comes to the way that she loves our children, she will always outpace me. I will never stand a snowflake's chance in hell in keeping up with that God-fearing woman and the way that she cares for our children. I'm not her peer. I can't compete with that. You guys, you don't know my wife. My wife is incredible. She is so godly. She is so humble. That's why there was no objection when I said, uh, uh-uh, sweetheart, put that book down. You're not going to outpace me, become a pedo Baptist three years before I have time to get into. Cause right now I'm apparently 
<laughs> what has been assigned to me is arguing about Christian nationalism. Now, some of that's on me, but some of it's because Baptists really need some help when in the, the political the, theological department. And so I, I'm dealing with all this. I just hosted the conference on theonomy and postmillennialism. I've got other conference. I'm really focusing on eschatology, on the goodness of God's law, general equity, uh, theonomy, God's law, and all of Christ being applied to all of life. There's a lot of things on my plate. Now, he, here's the deal. I'm not saying that I'm never going to get to the baptism issue because it, it matters. And ultimately, it's really just the fruit of your covenant theology. And ultimately, covenant theology is undergirding all these other things. Covenant theology plays into your eschatology, and it certainly plays into your um, political theology. So I'm going to get to it. And another thing for the record, here's the irony. My wife and I have read several Pado baptist books. Several Right, one book that we really enjoyed that, that we've both uh, read. She's actually in the process of reading it. She's reading it on her own, and I. But I, I went ahead and listened to the whole thing on Canon Plus. Was our friend uh, uh, Jared Longshore his book, The Covenant Family, and the whole thing is arguing for a Westminster covenant theology that is Pado Baptist, and it was a wonderful book. My wife has read you know books by uh, Nancy Wilson and Doug Wilson and all the you know all the home books, the marriage books and the parenting books. And Doug Wilson, when he writes a book on parenting, he writes it expressly as a pedo Baptist and in his case, a pedo communionist. So my wife has read those books with me. She's read uh, multiple books in that uh, vein without me. Um, half of the books that, that she's read on that particular subject, I don't even know uh, because the heart, the Bible says in the Proverbs, um, the man who's married to a good godly wife, the heart of her husband trust her, confides in her. So I'm not double checking. Um, What's my wife reading? I'm worried. Uh, what's she doing here? What's she doing? There? So most of the books that my, my wife has read, um, I don't even know what they are and I don't care to know what they are because I trust my wife because she's submissive. Uh, the, the reason why I don't have to be concerned about my wife is because my wife is not like many of the individuals who overreacted to my sermon on this particular topic. If my wife had that kind of attitude, uh, I would be more invested in what she's reading and what's going on. But I don't have to be because like the Proverbs 31 woman, right? Her husband gives her a sum of money. He's the, the ultimate provider for the family, but then she is allowed, she's permitted to have control over at least a portion of it for investing. She goes and buys a field. She does that because the husband trusts her, right? She's the viceroy in this little family kingdom. She's uh, the, the husband's like the sheriff and she's the, the chief deputy. And that's how it works in my home. My wife is my chief deputy. She is not my peer. We are not equals in terms of authority. We are equals in terms of innate value and dignity and worth. But in terms of hierarchy of authority, there is a hierarchy. And I trump her in terms of my position of authority. And yet she is esteemed and she is honored with a great deal of control and freedom and authority in the day-to-day -day business in our home. For our home to function smoothly in a healthy fashion, she must have authority. She does a ton of things. She is doing things right now, I can only assume, with our children that I have no knowledge about. And whatever she's doing with our children, what I do know is that it's good and that it honors the Lord because I married a woman who fears the Lord, who doesn't have a feminist bone in her body, praise God. She's humble. And so when I walked in the house and said, uh-uh, sweetheart, put down that book, we're not reading that, you will not outpace me in what? 
pedo-baptism, because I'm your husband, we want to be aligned doctrinally. We don't want to leave room for a foothold of division in our marriage. And I also, and this matters, I happen to pastor a Baptist church. I'm the pastor of a Baptist church, and you're the wife of the pastor in a Baptist church. So if we're going to cross this bridge, let's cross it when I'm ready, and let's cross it together. That's not crazy. But it was reacted to by many as though it was crazy. And so I'll leave you with this. Again, I pose the question. The, what I would consider, at least at some degree, extreme reaction for people who watch this sermon online, is it because uh, the example that I gave is a terrible, terrible, description of totalitarian misogynistic abuse in a home or is it because we have for the first time in 2000 years of church history biblically competent exegetes who have finally told us what it actually means for a woman not to teach or have authority over a man or is it because just maybe just maybe because we live in a society and culture and even the evangelical church, which is drenched in feminism. And that that feminism, not saying that everybody who had a negative reaction is a feminist, but that even good, for the most part, in general, good, conservative, biblical, faithful Christian women have still been affected, at least in some measure, in some degree, by feminism to the point where a very reasonable and even lighthearted half joking example could be used in a sermon and their immediate interpretation is this is toxic masculinity and abusive. Yeah, we, we are swimming in feminism and it's time that we just wake up and call a spade a spade. We are swimming in feminism. And it affects all of us in some measure, myself, for the record, included. None of us have, have been able to swim and live and breathe this atmosphere of feminism that we're affronted with day in and day out and do so unscathed. It has shaped us in some measure, in some form or fashion. It has molded us and influenced us. Of course it has. But again, what was the broader point? The broader point was sphere sovereignty. God's design for different governments in society. The scope of these governments and the depth of the authority of these governments. How much authority, how many people do they have authority over and what degree of authority do they have? Civil Church, home, self. And the whole point in all of it was to say that in the home, a man, right, God works through father rule, male headship across the board, and in the sphere of the home, a man as husband and father has a great deal more authority given to him by God. All vested authority, not inherent, but even given by God, he has a great deal more authority in his home than a magistrate, for instance, has in the state. You know, when COVID happened, it's, 
for those of us who took the right side of the position and were arguing, I was arguing in March, right? Not months after the fact, in March of 2020, that churches should open. I was arguing in March of 2020 that we should not require mass. And there were Christians, and I'm talking about reformed, complementarian, quasi-conservative Christians that were saying that's rebellious to authority. That that's rebellious to authority. That, that we should submit to authority. Now, here's the irony. Those same Christians who would say we should submit to the civil authority that tells us to wear a mask, those same Christians would lose their mind if I said that the familial authority of a man with his wife in his home, uh, if he said that the wife, let's just for instance, as an example, the wife is walking out the front door at 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning and she's walking outside to exercise. She's going to go for a jog through the neighborhood and she's wearing a tight t-shirt and yoga pants. As a husband, my wife would never do this again because she fears the Lord and she's learned about modesty. But if she were to do this, I would stop her at the door and I would say, sweetheart, you are not allowed to go jog around the neighborhood in front of the neighbors on a Saturday morning dressed like that because you're not really dressed. What you have is cotton fabric painted on. Let's put on clothes and not paint. And that's what yoga pants are. It is virtually paint. It is absolutely skin tight, nothing hidden whatsoever. And so as a husband, I would say, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to go outside in front of the neighbors dressed like this. This does not honor the Lord. It's not appropriate. And God has appointed me as your husband with a certain degree of authority. And this falls within my purview. Please change and wear something more modest and then enjoy your, your run. The gospel coalition would lose its mind with an example like that. And yet the same gospel coalition had a couple articles talking about how pastors And individual Christians, like myself, were rebellious for saying that the government doesn't have the authority to tell us to wear masks. Think about that, okay? So Gospel Coalition would say, um, if Caesar in the civil realm says, wear a, a dirty piece of cloth over your face for no scientific reason supported by data whatsoever, and do it for two, three years, And do it at church even, right? The civil authority says, wear this diaper on your face for no reason. And Gospel Coalition says, we need to be less rebellious, less arrogant, less prideful, be be more submissive. Wear the mask. But then in the sphere of the home, family, With a husband who has way more authority, in biblical terms, the husband has way more authority over his wife than Caesar has over the state, over the civil politic. But in the home, if a husband says, with with clear biblical support, why you can't wear yoga pants in public. Gospel Coalition would say, this is an example of you know, of just abusive, you know, male headship and the patriarchy being oppressive and You know they would. You know that that this is the the consensus. And again, I'm not describing right now, I'm not describing the opinions of a blue-haired feminist who, who murders babies in the womb. 
I'm talking about, again, complementarians. I'm talking about reformed, quasi-conservative, complementarian, evangelical Christians. And, and if civil authority tells you to do something stupid without cause, they would echo Caesar and say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Submit to Caesar. But then if a husband who's made vows to his bride with a wife who's called to submit to him as the church submits to Christ, if he says something with clear biblical support, like dressing more modestly, that we would say is an example of tyranny, an overstep of authority. That's what I was addressing in my sermon. That's the larger context, the larger point that I was trying to make. Four spheres of government, self, home, church, state. In each of these spheres of government, you have greater degrees of authority, but lesser and lesser scopes of authority. In the state, wide scope of authority, lots of people in your authority, but it's about an inch deep. In the church, less people that you have authority over as a pastor, but a little bit greater degree of authority. In the home, very small scope of authority. In my case, five people, my wife and my children, but a greater degree of authority. I have more authority over my wife than I have over my congregation and more authority over my children than I have over my wife. And what does that authority look like? To provide some practical examples, I gave them in this sermon with my children. It means I even have authority for my two and three-year-old about when to go to the bathroom. It's potty time before bed. I want you to go potty. Right? As a pastor, I can never tell someone in my congregation when to go potty. That would be tyranny. That would be an abuse of authority. I don't have that authority. But in the home, I have authority over a smaller amount of people, but a greater degree. With my wife, I don't have the authority to tell her when to go potty, but I do have the authority to tell her not to wear yoga pants, which again, if you're tuning in right now, my wife wouldn't do because she fears the Lord. She understands biblical modesty. Um, but the example that I did give a few weeks ago in my sermon is that I have the authority to tell my wife, who is married to the pastor of a credo Baptist church, hey, I don't want you to voluntarily subject yourself to conscience-binding arguments towards the pedo baptist position to where you're now placed in, in a difficult spot to where you can't help but think that you are a part of a church and married to a man who's currently in sin for not baptizing infants. That's probably not going to be good for the unity of our marriage. It's probably not going to be good for the unity of our congregation. Yet at the same time, let God be true and every man a liar. So if Presbyterians are right, then we'll become Presbyterian, but let's do it together. And don't outpace me, a.k.a. don't read and become convinced and persuaded in this particular topic before I'm ready to do it with you. Crazy, huh? Thanks for tuning in. Can I be frank with you for just a second right here at the end? Look, some of you guys, you're financially supporting this ministry. And from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you. I cannot thank you 
enough. However, some of you, you just, you can't afford it. In fact, some of you, you shouldn't afford it. Let's be honest. I mean, we're living in Joe Biden's ridiculous economy. Our nation and our totalitarian political elites lost their minds over the last three years due to COVID. We have written checks that we simply cannot cash. It doesn't matter if people change the definition of a recession. We are living in a recession right now regardless. Some of you are struggling to afford a carton of eggs at the grocery store. You cannot support financially this ministry at this time, nor should you. But you could still help us tremendously. I am asking you, please, if you're willing to do so, Take one minute of your time. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, whatever that might be. This is the way the system works. We want to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers. We need to be strategic. You leave us a five-star review, and our podcast shows up for more people. And the Word of God and courageous theology applied in practical ways to every realm of life gets out there. Help us get it out there. Thanks for tuning in.